for those of you that are joining us today. Maybe you're joining us for the very first time. I'm so glad to have you with us today. And I, I believe this. I, I, I feel like I can say this every time. Sometimes I have to admit it's not as clear as others, but today I believe strongly that God has given me something specific for someone today. And uh, I want us to be in a spirit and in an atmosphere and in a posture to receive what God wants to say today because I believe God is speaking to someone and bringing you hope in Jesus' name. take you to scripture here this morning out of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, most of them were written by a man that most of us would be familiar with by the name of David, known some called King David. He became king of Israel. And um, David probably had, on most people's list would be a top five biblical character even if you don't really know anything about church, don't really know anything about God, don't really know anything about the Word of God, you more than likely have at least heard his name mentioned. If you don't really know much of the story, you've at least heard of some of his uh, accolades. David slaying the giant, David and Goliath, 
being something that even in our secular world is used when the underdog wins a victory. But David was a very complex fellow. David had sort of a interesting story. It wasn't quite the Hollywood ending it had that uh, some would think it would be it was a very complex story David's past was very complex his he was a very emotional person and he had a lot of highs and had a, a lot of lows and one of the things about David that we can all appreciate is David did not really hide his feelings he didn't hide his feelings from God and he certainly shared those feelings to us in his writings and we can read sort of the ups and downs of his life um, and he was a great man with great faith great love for God spent much of his life pursuing God but he was also a man that dealt with a lot of internal trouble he was a man that had a lot of internal things that he was dealing with and every once in a while this would come out in his writings and one of the ones I want to focus on here this morning to kind of show you sort of the, 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 the back and forth that David dealt with is Psalms chapter 30. And that it's, I'm going to read the entirety of it. It's only 12 verses long, but kind of listen to this sort of in-depth emotional uh, plea that David has. He said, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You've restored me to life among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks to his knowing name for his anger is not for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved, but your favor, O Lord, you have made my mountain stand strong. You have hid your face. I was, you have hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is that is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness here, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper? You have turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. It's a very short psalm, but it gives a very deep understanding in a brief way of sort of the back and forth that David dealt with. He makes a statement that weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You don't understand that statement unless you've been there. That was not written out of his intellect. That was not written out of skill or talent. That was written out of an experience that he had had. He talked about turning mourning into dancing and taking off the sackcloth and putting on gladness. These are things that David did not see. These are things that David had experienced. And there are many other Psalms, and I don't have time today, and that's not really what I want to get into anyways, that he gets into that David gives sort of this lamenting uh, view on life. He could be a very pessimistic person at times. He could be someone that had a hard time seeing the, the bright side, the sunny side, if you want to say it that way. But David always circled around and came back to the true answer, which is God. But sometimes he struggled with that. And at first glance, it may seem like it's hard to kind of pinpoint maybe where that came from. The story of David is somewhat of a great story of the birth of a hero. Here is a shepherd boy that at a young age 
was selected to be the second king of Israel and God's chosen king. In the midst of all of his older brothers and even his father dismissing his um, his ability to ascend to the throne, God speaks and says, this is the guy. Don't judge by the outside, but look on the heart. And this is a tremendous story. And then from this young boy, we have this great epic tale of him slaying a, a lion and slaying a bear and then facing one of the most feared warriors in all of history in Goliath and destroying Goliath and then kind of watching David ascend up through the ranks and then sort of this pursuit that takes place from Saul uh, who was the current king of Israel that was threatened by David um, and watching David sort of escape and kind of go through his own trials and living as a fugitive and and um, and and all the things that happened finally culminating in his uh, ascension to the throne and fulfilling his role that God had called him and and in a lot of ways there's this tremendous uh, tremendous story there and and he had his faults we know that David got himself in trouble um, and made some major mistakes and and that's not the point of today either you can go and read the story and sort of the arc of his story and how he had to find his way back through forgiveness and. And Psalms 51 gives us this beautiful prayer that David prays in his desire to rekindle and to reestablish his connection with God. But what's amazing about David's story is, is on the surface, it seems like there is sort of this wonderful tale. But there was this man who was dealing with some things internally that don't quite come to the surface. And I've noticed that most of us are not driven to God out of a out of this beautiful story of hunger. Yeah, we might all have a hunger for God, but most of us are driven to God because of something that we're dealing with. Whether it's dealing with brokenness or emptiness, we're dealing with hurt, we're dealing with disillusion, we've been hopeless, or there's a lot of things that we're dealing with that we don't have an answer that drives us to God. Very few people have ever woken up one day in a perfect life with everything in their life going the way it needs to and suddenly acknowledge their need for God. Most people come to the end of themselves to find God. Most of you and I myself have come to the end of ourselves to find God. And sometimes we have to, re we have to go back there. Even after walking with God for years, you have to find yourself sometimes coming to the end of yourself to go, okay, God, I've missed some things. I've got to go back to the, back to the starting block. David was somebody that, at first glance, his relationship and his desire to know God and this shepherd boy out in the field playing and writing beautiful songs and talking to God and God visiting him and God declaring, this is a man after my own heart. It appears to be this wonderful story that's so wonderfully woven together and beautiful. And David is just this wonderful young man who's just doing what his father told him. And it seems at surface that it is that story. But if you peel back the layer, you will find that David's story was a lot, was a story of hopelessness. David's was a story of shame. David was a story of rejection. David's was a story where that really it was an improbable, improbable journey to the, uh, to the, um, to the throne. It wasn't a scripted journey. It wasn't selected. It wasn't, he wasn't a prodigy. He was an outcast. The Bible doesn't really give us a clear understanding of what that is. David alludes to it many times in his writing. He talks and gives us some glimpses into his pain, into his suffering. He talks about being an outcast and a reject. He talks about being born in iniquity and sin. And he alludes to there's something in him that is not quite right. There's something in him that he's maybe running from. 
before he starts running to. Usually we start running from something before we realize we need to run to something. I'm going to say that again because someone needs to hear that today. A lot of times we start running from something before we realize it's not running from that's the answer. It's running to. You can run from something all you want, but really what you're doing is you're running with your head, running with your head looking back over your shoulder, waiting for the sort of the proverbial uh, monster to catch up with you. You're running, it's walking, but it seems to always be catching up. It's not really running from something that's the answer, but running to something. Paul said it later on in the Bible where he says, forgetting those things that are behind me and pressing towards the mark. We spend a lot of our time working on what not to do that we forget the greatest way to fix what not to do is to do something. And David sort of gives this, this illusion and he's running from something. We don't really know what it is quite. The Bible doesn't say David doesn't really share. But if you begin to deal with a little bit and you, you peel back some of the layers of, of oral tradition in the Jewish history, um, it begins to paint a picture of David's life and especially what his early life would have been like. Um, his mother was a woman by the name of uh, Netzeva, I believe that's how you would say it. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it quite correctly, but Netzeva was David's mother. Um, she was married to David's father, which was Jesse. Jesse had a very prestigious role. He was the head of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was sort of the Supreme Court of Israel. The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court, the one that was in charge of uh, interpreting fully and uh, administering the the law, the Torah, the, the, the law of God. And so Jesse was a very prestigious uh, man. He had had sons. We know that Jesse had sons because when the prophet shows up to the house to anoint David as king, the first thing Jesse does is kind of trot out his first, uh, I forgot how many were there, six or seven. I don't remember off the top of my head if the Bible says how many boys there were that he trots out and Samuel goes down the line and all of them are a no. And finally he goes, are there any more? And after kind of an afterthought, Jesse goes, yeah, well, I've got one more, but I know he's not the one. In fact, he's not even here. He's out there with the field. So Jesse has this. And so the story is, is that Jesse begins to struggle with his past and his identity because Jesse's grandmother was a woman by the name of Ruth. In fact, if you know the 66 books of the Bible, you will know that Ruth is one of the books of the Bible. There are two books of the Bible that are named after women, Ruth being one of them. Ruth has a wonderful story in of itself. I don't have time to go into her story today, but she has a beautiful story. But Ruth was a Moabite by blood. Moabite not being a Jew, not being from Israel, but a Moabite by blood. There's a long story of how she became a part of the tribe of Israel, but she married a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz had a Boaz and Ruth had a child named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse began to struggle because here was a man that in a lot of ways had everything, being in such a place of power and prestige. He had these sons, but he began to struggle because he began to question whether or not his heirs were of pure blood because he knew his grandmother was a Moabite and therefore he had mixed blood. And I know for us today, that's not quite as a, quite a big deal as it, as it was back then. 
Um, nowadays, uh, thankfully, we've got to the point where, but marriages and relationships are not as as defined as much by color and culture, which is a beautiful thing. But then it was a very, in still parts of the world today, the bloodline is extremely important in some cultures. And in the Jewish world and in Israel, bloodline was everything. And so Jesse began to question this idea that, does he have a pure heir? Because he has Moabite blood in his in his past, in his family tree, from his grandmother. And so therefore, can he have a pure uh, a pure um, heir if it's Moabite mixed with Netzeva, who was a Jew. And so, uh, so there's a struggle here in Jesse's own life. And so the story is, is that Jesse began to look for, Netzeva was Jesse's wife, but Jesse looked, began to look for a Moabite woman who could, um, who could uh, bear him a child, a son, who could be his pure heir, Moabite becoming a Moabite. Um, and the story is he selected uh, one of his uh, servants to become, she was a Moabite, he selected it, but the servant was uncomfortable with this idea and approached Netzeva uh, on what the plan was. And so Netzeva and this Moabite servant um, worked together and they, uh, Jesse had arranged to, um, to sleep with the Moabite servant and in the middle of that they switched and he actually ended up sleeping with Netzeva not realizing it. The crazy part about the story as it's told is, is that Netzeva became pregnant, but in a desire not to shame her husband, she did not tell or would not tell from who she was pregnant by. She did not want to bring shame to her husband because of what he had done and he had and being tricked by his own wife and this and then becoming so she kept it silent. She bore shame in a desire to protect her husband. And when the baby came, this baby became David. So when David was born, he was not born with this beautiful silver spoon in his mouth. He was actually born in shame. He was born in rejection. He was born in question. He was born, as David even describes his own birth, he was born in iniquity. And though we can begin to see a little bit about how the story of David's early years was formed, that's why of all the boys that were home, David was the one out in the field with the sheep. And not just in any old field, it was a field that had lions and bears. So I would imagine there was a little bit of a desire to, hey, you know, let's send him out there. If he gets eaten, okay, at least, you know, he's not really worth anything anyways, I think that's part of the thinking why you would send your son, your baby boy, out to the field with these wild animals at a young age. Um, because ultimately, you didn't really see him as the same as your, as your other boys. And when the prophet showed up, he didn't look at David the same way. So David is dealing with this. But then we see this other side of David that is just absolutely amazing. We see this guy who is spoken to by God, who's described by God himself as being a man after God's own heart. And David, with all his ups and downs, was absolutely a, an amazing character. And when Jesus came to this earth, he could have chosen any other path. He could have chosen any law, any bloodline. But David, but Jesus chose to sit and still sits on the throne of David. What an amazing 
uh, a seal of approval, even after all that David went through and all that happened, the greatest seal of approval is that Jesus was from the house of David and sits on the throne of David. I mean, you can't get a better seal of approval than from Jesus Christ himself. But what's even ama- more amazing about David's story is not just how he was how he was brought into this world, or not even the fact that his great-grandmother, Ruth, was somebody of, of quite amazing significance and had such an amazing story herself. But what's even more amazing about David's story is if you go one step further past Ruth, there's another interesting character in the, in the history of David's family tree by the name of Rahab. Now, you may know this name and you would know the story, but some of you may or may not know this story. But for just a moment here, Rahab is a character we find in the Old Testament. Israel had been taken out of the prom, out, out, of, out of Egypt. They had been slaves to Egypt for over 400 years. And finally, Moses shows up and we have this story of the Exodus, right? Ten plagues, finally leaving uh, Egypt, crossing over the Red Sea, the water collapsed. Egypt, uh, Egyptian armies taken, and they start this journey to the promised land. And because of some doubt and unbelief and some other things, we find that they start wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, waiting for uh, a new generation to arise uh, to go to the promised land. And so finally, after 40 years, uh, Moses is dead. Joshua now has taken over, and Joshua leads uh, the children of Israel across the Jordan River, which became the boundary to this land called the promised land. And before they cross over, there is one uh, major obstacle that awaits them when they cross over. And it's the, it's this city called Jericho. Um, it's really hard to describe what it must have been like to face such a formidable foe because for us, we live in a world of modern weapons. We live in a world where you can drop a bomb from 30,000 feet and take care of uh, fortresses, but back then when you had very limited and very crude uh, weaponry, a city like Jericho would have seemed like an almost insurmountable in uh, a fortress that was absolutely uh, unbeatable. It was a city that had great walls. In fact, they were so high and they were so wide that they actually could race chariots side by side on top of the walls. And so here comes the Israelite army with very basic weapons to face this great uh, um, fortress called Jericho. So the story is that they sent spies and the spies go to scout out um, the city to find out what's really going on in the city. And in the idea, and when they find out the spies are there, the spies hide and they hide in this uh, house uh, that is, uh, that belongs to a woman by the name of Rahab. Now, I know this may be, I know there's young kids watching. I'll try to be as discreet as possible, but I feel like this is an important part of the story. The name Rahab means wide as a road or open road. Now, I don't know. I'm trying to be very, um, very uh, basic here. But when you look at her meaning of her name and then what she was, I don't think Rahab was her original name. Because she began to be known as Rahab because of her, uh, because of her profession. I'm trying to be as very gentle and discreet as possible. So here's a woman who her, even her, her, her very name brings shame. 
her very name echoes uh, to a, a, a tabooed vice. Uh, and that the fact that every man in the city knew of her. And it was not shocking to see strangers in her house. And therefore, when the Israelite spies went into her house, it wasn't like it was alarming quite. Because this was a woman who regularly had men in her house. And she began to be known by that name across the city. But she was a woman who, by first glance, would have absolutely... You would not want to be associated with her. You wouldn't want to talk to her. You wouldn't even want to be known to her on the street. When she walked on the streets to go to market, you wouldn't want to be talking to her. You wouldn't want to be known to her. You'd want to walk on the other side of the street because to be associated with her would bring you shame. To be associated with her, you would you would feel the shame. And so here's this woman whose very being, whose very appearance, whose everything about her it represents shame. Everything about her represents hopelessness. But you see, this is the problem that we all have. We only can see things for what they are. We only can see things. Our life, our identity usually is based on our past. And not just the past. When you look back at your past and you look back at your life, you don't really play it like a movie. We really look at it like a like a, a photo scroll on your phone right it's memories that are attached to images or feelings or thoughts it's not really a movie as much as it's just a collection of snapshots that we've we have woven together to create our history our past and so we remember things in a very different way than than necessarily if we can look back and look at everything in its totality we remember mostly, if I said to you, recall 2020 to me, you wouldn't tell me every single day of 2020. In fact, there were many days in 2020, you probably can't even remember what you did. You can't remember what it was like that day. But you could go back in 2020 and go, you know what, I remember in March the first time that I heard the news that they were going to shut down everything. I didn't even know what that means. I didn't even understand the word quarantine. But I remember 2020 when we went to quarantine. Or I remember the first time, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. We remember the first time we wore a mask into a store. It was at the local grocery store right here near our house. It was the first time we wore a, a mask in public all the way back in March of 2020. Um, one of the ladies in the church who works at the hospital had got us a mask. And so we wore them before there was even a mask mandate. We wore them to the local grocery store. And I remember coming back to the car and looking in the mirror at sort of this strange world that we were entering in, not knowing we'd still be doing it two years later. But that's sort of how I remember. We can remember some snap snapshots of 2020. But I, I can't tell you on April the 3rd, 2020, what I was doing. What, 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 what was I doing at 1 o'clock? Unless it was something that creates a snapshot. And so... When you and I look back at our past and we, we, we deal with things in our past, we're usually dealing with moments. We're usually dealing with events. We're usually dealing with a feeling and a moment that we associate a feeling with or something that we've done, we've done or something that was done to us. In this case, when, when we look at Rahab, it's not really what was done to her. It's really what she did. And so when we look at her, it's we, we, we can't see anything outside of the fact that here's a woman who, for most accounts does not associate with anything good. She should not be anyone that you and I, especially if we could bring her into the modern world, we as Christians, as holy people, should not associate ourselves with 
Rahab. I wonder if Rahab would walk into a gathering, a church gathering, how she would be treated. I wonder if Rahab walked into a church gathering, would, would some of the wives grab their husbands and say, don't look at that, don't go near her. She, she's, she's bad news. And I'm not saying, I mean, thank God that women are there because we men need, need that. But I'm not saying, I'm saying from the standpoint we see and we automatically assume this woman is bad news because look at her and look at her, her very name. Her name is not even good. I mean, we, some of us would even blush to say her name because her name connotates what she did. Her name connotates her reputation. And so to even say her name sort of can, can cause some to blush by even saying that name. And so here's this woman who of all counts should not be anywhere near the great nation of Israel and should not be associated with anything that Israel has. And on top of that, if God is going to choose anybody, this ain't the woman to choose. Choose somebody else. There's got to be somebody else in that city, God, that can use. But with everybody else in that city, they end up at this woman's house, not by accident, by divine appointment. And the story is, is that she welcomes them, she hides them, she helps them escape. And she says to them, when you come, just remember me and my family when you come. And they said, okay, when you get, put a, put a red, red thread outside of your window and we'll make sure that we know it's you. And I'll tell everybody not to mess with you. And the Bible says the story goes when the walls came, come, came down, crumbling down. Apparently that section of wall that she was on did not fall. And there was a beautiful story about this woman named Rahab, and she began to be a part of the nation of Israel. She stayed there, and she began to live there. And, and what a wonderful story. But that, was, that would have been amazing enough. If that was the story by itself, that would have been awesome. What an amazing story of, of, of redemption. What a beautiful story of this woman who, who had no business living. She should have been one of the first to go, but yet God spared her and to show the, the grace and mercy of God. If that was the story, wow, let's stop there. What an amazing story of hope. But God never does anything halfway. God's not interested in just erasing our past. God is more interested in helping us fulfill our future. Yes, he is awesome and loves to forgive. He loves to heal. But he doesn't just forgive and heal so that we can erase our yesterday. He forgives and heals not for our yesterday. He erases and heals for our tomorrow. Because he calls those things that are not as though they were. And so here's this woman who, for all accounts, if all what happened to her is that her past was erased, and instead of being named Rahab, she became known as Mary or some other accepted Jewish name. And she would have just, what an amazing story that would have been. But it didn't stop there. Rahab married a man and they begat a son. And they had a son and Rahab had a son named Boaz. And Boaz married a woman named Ruth. And Ruth had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. It didn't stop with this woman. And so when you look at David's life, not only is he dealing with... Uh, not only are we dealing with the fact that, that David is dealing with his own rejection and his own, um, own 
birth, but his great, great, I guess that would be his great, great grandmother is someone that every time you say her name, you kind of have to blush a little bit. Rahab, wide as a, wide as a road, wide open, open wide. What kind of name? But that's, that in of itself should tell you something amazing. Because David gives us the book of Psalms. David becomes the throne by which God sits on. David has a son by the name of Solomon. Solomon builds the great temple, the house of God. David is responsible for Israel rising to become such a prominent power. David is is credited with so many amazing things. And, and, and if you want to aspire to be someone in the Bible, usually David is someone that is at the top of the list because who would not want to be known by God as someone after God's own heart? Who would want, who, who wouldn't want that? How would you like for people to say about you? Say, you know what? I don't know anything about that, that person, but I'll tell you one thing. They're about God's heart. Or have God say to everybody that you are about his heart. Isn't that amazing? That in and of itself is just phenomenal that that, that would be what you're known by and that's what is something that, that is in your reputation. But what's amazing about David Without a Rahab, there is no David. Without there being a Rahab, there is no David. Rahab is one of the reasons why David exists, Isaac existed. This is not what I want to say today, but can I say this to the church that's watching today? How many Davids have been aborted? How many Davids have not lived not because of David, but because we did not see a Rahab. We only saw Rahab for her name, but we did not see Rahab how God sees her. And so therefore, because of that, we have rejected too many Rahabs. And because of that, we have missed out on a lot of Davids in the church. Because the church only wants to see something I imagine when the spies came back and they said, Hey, there's a woman in town who's going to help us out. What's her name? Rahab. What did you just say? Son, you better not say that again. We're going to wash out your mouth with soap. What's her name? Rahab. Can you say that again slowly? You say her name is Rahab? What does she do for a living? Well, um, she's a prostitute. Have you lost your mind? You mean to tell me God has brought us out of Egypt? We've walked around for 40 years in this wilderness and then he brought us across the Jordan River and you're going to hook all of our hopes on a prostitute? Are you out of your mind? Son, you better go back and think that over again. Don't even bring that up to Joshua. He's going to laugh you out of me. Doesn't it sound like God? My goodness, we can't accept a word from anyone unless that person has a pedigree of perfection. What if God was talking to you today from somebody that you didn't, you just their pure name represented shame? What 
pure, their name itself represented something that, that caused you to blush. What if that was the case? But see, if the church, and I'm, I got to stop here because I don't want to get too caught up in this, not what I'm saying today. If the church doesn't, doesn't begin to see people like God sees them, we're never going to let Rahab's ever live. And therefore, we're going to miss out on David's and Solomon's. And we're going to miss out on things that we could see and God could do because we can't love the Rahab's for who they are. We got to love the Rahab's because unless you come to us and you change your name and you stop doing what you're doing, we'll accept you. And then you'll be worthy enough to have a, a David. No, 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 no. God never changed her name. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you go through the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it's says right there in the Holy Gospel, talking about the Holy Child Jesus, in his family tree, it says a Rahab. It says Jesus came from a prostitute, didn't even change his name, left her name in his family tree. But without a Rahab, there would be no David. And without a David, would there even have been a throne for Jesus to sit on? I know you said, well, God would have worked something out. Maybe, but we can't say it that way because ultimately the church should see Rahab's for who they are, not for what they've done because we don't know her story. I would love that Mr. Rogers, who was such a beautiful man, apparently he held, he carried around in his coat pocket or his pants pocket a note that was given to him by a social worker. And he used this as sort of the, the backbone of his life. And I believe, I, I don't know if I get the quote quite correctly here. Some of you may know it better than me, so forgive me if it's wrong. But the quote was basically this. You can learn to love anybody if you just stop and listen to their story. And so that was his sort of desire to, to just hear someone's story before he judged them or, or found fault with them. He heard their story. When you can hear someone's story, you can learn to love them. That, that person at, at your job who's a jerk, that person at your job who's just always in a bad mood, you can mark them off and go, well, they're just a, they're just a bad person. But what if you knew their story? Not just their current story, but what if you knew their past? What if their, were their, what if their dad never said they lo that he loved them? What if their mom was constantly... Uh, would brought shame and, and, and frustration. And what, what if their past, they were molested or abused by a, a relative? What if they had a teacher that, 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 was, that, that did them wrong? What if, we, what if you knew their past? No, does it excuse us to walk around with a chip on our shoulder? No, but if you know their story, you could learn to love them. And so Jesus does not see you for who you are. He sees you for what you become, but he sees you for your story. Your story matters to him. Rahab's story, you don't know what made Rahab become Rahab. We don't know what drove her to become Rahab. I don't think any woman grows up with a dream to become that profession. Something in her past, something had to have happened to drive her to that. And she became that, and that became a reputation. And more than likely, her name was changed to fit her profession. But God didn't change her name. He just said, you have a story, and therefore his love and his redemption brought her into his family tree and Jesus Jesus his great 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 grandmother was a prostitute so one more time church 
We need to find the Rahabs, not so we can judge them, so that we can love them. Because there are some Rahabs out there in this world that have Davids in their womb. There are some Rahabs in this world that have greatness in them. And we don't have to have them changed. They don't need to come and just get changed and get all cleaned up and holy up. They may stay, they may stay Rahabs, but in them there is a David. Man, I wish I was somewhere I could get somebody to say amen. But here's this woman. What did she deal with? This Rahab. Dealing with this. They said hang a red thread outside the door. Red representing forgiveness. The cross of Jesus. The red blood of Jesus Christ. It was a type of forgiveness that would come later to us on the cross. Some of you today feel completely hopeless. Maybe it's because of what you have done. Maybe because of what has done to you. Maybe it's how you were born like a David. Maybe you weren't born in the greatest of circumstances. Or maybe like Rahab, your life and your story has pushed you towards places you had never imagined you'd be. And everybody knows you by that reputation. And I'm speaking to you today. I believe today that God has come to tell you today that there is hope. That your past does not determine your future. Your failures are not final. I'm not giving you words of just simply platitudes. I'm not trying to give you a line today. I can feel God telling someone today if I did it with Rahab if I did it with David I don't change I'm the same yesterday today ever give me a chance today I will show you that I can bring hope in the most hopeless of situations for you there are some of you today when I was praying this morning I could feel and I, I'm not saying this it's, it's like well of course you can say that I'm sure someone no I, I'm, I'm telling you there's someone today that you're watching not because you online is convenient or not because it's easy you're watching today online because you don't have the hope and you don't have the faith to even leave your house you are filled with so much shame you're filled with so much hurt you're filled with so much rejection that even the thought of leaving your own home sometimes is too much for you to bear and for you sometimes even leaving your bed is too much some days because you feel so hopeless and the lies of satan and the lies of this world and the accusations of people even people close to you have kept you paralyzed and you think there is no way possible I'll ever be able to change. There's no way possible there's ever going to be hope for me. There's no way possible I'm ever going to change. I've already made too many mistakes or too many things have been done to me. I've, I've got too much hurt. I've got too much rejection. For Rahab, it's what she would, what she did. For David, it was what, he was what was done to him. But both of them had to deal with the fact that both of them were in hopeless situations. Some of you today are paralyzed by hopelessness. You can't see anything other than where you are. You can't see anything other than where you've come from. And for you, if yesterday was like that, the day before was like that, then today's going to be like it, and then tomorrow's going to be like it. For what's the point? And some of you today, I'm telling you, even the spirit of suicide is knocking at your door. I know what I'm saying is true because I can feel the love of God reaching out right now to someone. This is not Joel Wright talking. I'm not, I'm not talking as Joel Wright right now. Joel Wright's nobody. Joel Wright's got more flaws than I can even shake a stick at. 
understand. Don't hear me today. I'm telling you, I know what I can feel because I can feel the love of God reaching for somebody today. I can feel the grace and mercy of God. Even online, I'm sitting here in my home and you're sitting in your home or you're sitting somewhere else or maybe you're in your car because you're trying to hide from the world and, and you're in your little bubble of cocoon of, of protection. You don't even want to face anybody today, but I'm telling you in the Holy Ghost, even the, the voice of suicide knocks at your door every once in a while and says, you know what? You might as well give up and just say it's no use. It's never going to be the one, never going to change. But I'm telling you today, it's a lie that there is hope and hope has a name. Hope has a name today. And that hope is Jesus Christ. Don't listen to the voice of the past. Don't listen to the voice of today. Don't listen to the voice of the adversary. And I will say it this way. Don't even listen to the voice of religion because religion wants to tell you you'll never be anybody because you're a Rahab and if you're a Rahab today you're going to be a Rahab tomorrow and yeah God can forgive you but you're always going to be a Rahab you know what God will forgive you and your name will be Rahab but it won't matter to God in fact he'll say you're not only are you a Rahab but there is something in you that I want and I want greatness because it's in you yeah you may be a Rahab but Rahab, because you're a Rahab, doesn't mean that you can't find God, that there's no hope. The, the, the religious world wants to say that. The religious world wants to say you got to get cleaned up to come to God. You got to do this to come to God. You can't be, come to God if you're this way. The religious world says that, but it's a lie. It's just another lie because ultimately the Bible says all have sinned. I may not be a Rahab today by name and reputation, but I'm a Rahab today because I have done things. I could go with you in the list. I've lied. I've cheated. I've stole. I've, I've manipulated. I've hurt. I've abused. I've done all those things. It may not be the same story as Rahab, but I've got my own story. I don't sit here today as Joel right the perfect halo wearing pure linen and white and perfection i sit here today much like a rahab with nothing but broken pieces of my past and things that i've done that god please let me go back and change but he doesn't so i have a choice i can look back in my past and go well i've screwed up and that's the way it's going to be forever or i can say god i don't have any hope but i know that your hope there's hope There's hope. There's hope. Jesus, we just went through, and I finish with this today. We just went through the Christmas season. And one of the things, the images of the Christmas season that is so prevalent to so many of us is the nativity, right? Churches displayed out front. You might have one in your home that you place and it's the it's Jesus in a manger and the straw little thing and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the sheep and the lamb and the goats and the wise men. It's this picture of the birth of Christ, this nativity scene as we is called. But the fact is, and I don't want to sound I don't sound this out of arrogance, I'm just trying to see get you to see something. It's not a very biblical picture. The nativity scene is not biblically accurate. Sorry. You see that the 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 most people when you ask them about the birth of Jesus, they associate the birth of Jesus with a stable, right? He was born at a barn. But actually the Bible never says that. Imagine that, right? It never says that. The Bible describes the birth of Jesus and says that Jesus was 
was, was uh, there was no room for Jesus in the inn. So he was laid in a manger. Now, for our modern thinking, when we see the word in, I-N-N, we automatically think of sort of, you know, the uh, local uh, red roof or Motel 6 or Days Inn that's down the street from us. And so therefore, when we hear the word in, um, we're assuming that Jesus uh, was, Mary and Joseph were looking around on Expedia or uh, Travelocity trying to book a room um, and could not find anywhere. But that's actually not the place. That word in there in the Greek is the word kataluma. Uh, it actually means guest house. Uh, the word in that's associated with a public place where you can rent a room is actually used later in the Bible when it talks about the Good Samaritan taking the wounded man to an inn. That's two different words, not the same. So the inn that we associate with a hotel where Jesus couldn't find any place in a hotel is actually not that at all. That's later in the Good Samaritan. Why do I say that? Because there's some popular opinions that we have of where Jesus would have been born. The one opinion is, well, he's born in a stable, born in a barn. But there's no biblical evidence to that. The other one would have been, some believe he was born in a cave. That's a prominent one that really came out of uh, Constantine, the Roman emperor that uh, founded Catholicism. He was the one that gave that a um, seal of approval, that the cave was the birthplace of Jesus. And there was some, 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 symbol, some, uh, some evidence to point to that, that caves were used for livestock, um, um, that in the area there of Jerusalem um, or, or Bethlehem in that area there was there was a lot of um, homes with 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 the limestone had carved out caves and you could put it and, and and that's definitely you, you can't eliminate that theory the Bible doesn't say and so because it doesn't say we can't just say definitively here's how it happened but there's some holes to that as well but the one that I recently came across in study that I found to be interesting. It fits with what I'm talking about today. I'm not trying to give you a historical archaeological lesson. Is that the Bible says that Mary and Joseph could not find any room in the inn, but the word in there is guest house. Now, for you and I, we don't really quite understand that because of the way our homes are built and the way we live in America, when we think of guest house, we literally think of a separate house, like a separate house. But in reality, is the Jewish home or the homes in that area at the time, if you look at this little image I have, if you look at the bottom floor there, you'll see that it has some animals in it. And then the top floor, you'll see that there's a, a wash pitcher and there appears to be, I believe that looks like a loom where they're making some, some kind of blanket. And there's another place there that appears to be a bedroom with the green sheet. And then below that, there is place for animals and there's a ladder. And this is depicting of a actual uh, cutout of what a, what a house would be like in, um, in that area at the time of Jesus' birth. And the upstairs, the upper room, in fact, later on in Jesus' life, when he's doing at the, last, uh, at the uh, last Supper, he actually has it in the upper room. The upper room was where that family would live. It was the place where the bedrooms were. It was a place where you would eat and you would fellowship. It was a place of congregation and, and had an area in there for guests. Down below was an area for storage, right? They didn't have basements. So it was an area you would store your food or in inclement weather, you would bring livestock or in other areas, you have your, your prized family donkey or your prized family sheep or something that is a great value to the family. One of the animals that provided food or value to the family, they would be brought into this lower area of the house at night. 
You're saying, what in the world does this have this significant way Rahab? I'm getting to it. So, when Mary and Joseph shows up and it says there's no room, Mary and Joseph were going back to the place of their family's birth, right? There was a, a, a census that went out. You got to go back to this. You got to get counted. And so they travel back to Bethlehem because that's where family was from. So they show up. They didn't show up as strangers. They showed up. They had family there. But the story is they could not find any place in the guest house for family. Now, there's two things that could have happened. Number one, so many people could have come. There was legitimately no room in the, uh, in the guest house, the guest area. So there's nowhere else to sleep. Mary and Joseph, sorry, but we do have, you can sleep downstairs. We have that open. And that's certainly plausible. But the other thing that's quite interesting that fits with the story of Jesus Christ is that Mary had this child by the Holy Ghost, right? We know the story. She's supposed to be married to Joseph. The, the angel shows up to Mary and says, you're pregnant with a child. And Joseph's like, yeah, I'm not doing that because I'm going to try to divorce her quietly because this ain't right. And the angel says, no, you're going to marry her because she actually is with child. And that child is the Holy, is, is, comes from the Holy Ghost. And so they get married. But let's be frank. I don't think everyone bought the story. I don't know. So apparently the story got out. I don't know if every, no one bought the story. So when Joseph, who Mary, they get married. And then a couple weeks later, Mary's starting to show. I mean, come on. Everyone's smart enough to know that if you if you get married in June and you have a baby in August, you didn't get pregnant after you were married. You got pregnant before. So Mary and Joseph got married after Mary was pregnant. You can do some easy math and realize, wait a minute, guys. Um, you said Mary was, was, was ready with child. You guys got married six months ago. Mm, somebody telling the truth. So there was definitely some questions about the birth of Jesus that had whispered to the family. So my what I what I see happening is that when she shows up to the to her family to, to the family home, there's no room because let's be frank, the family didn't want to be associated with something that would bring shame to the family. And an illegitimate child brought shame. Okay, Joseph, you may marry her, but doesn't mean we have to because ultimately we know what happened. Either you slept with her or someone else slept with her and you're covering up. But we're not. So you know what? We don't want to totally reject you, but we'll give you what's next best. You can sleep down with the, uh, with the, with the animals. Have your baby down there because ultimately that's probably what's best for it anyways. And what's amazing is, instead of the story of Jesus being born in a barn, what if he was born in the bottom lower part of a house because his mere birth was so shameful that his own extended family didn't want to have anything to do with him and so they put him in the bottom floor and shame beget shame because the bible says in john chapter 1 verse 11 he came into his own and his own received him not the very book, the very beginning of the Gospel of John says he came unto his own and his own received him not. Meaning he had so much shame associated with his birth that his birth was so shameful that the family said, look, we can't even accept you because we know this ain't right. That they even had his birth as shame. And then you go all the way back to the fact that his family tree was riddled with shame. Shame from Rahab. Shame from Ruth marrying a Israelite, being a Moabite. Shame from David being an adulterer and a murderer. Shame. That his birth was shame. 
But what's amazing is that Jesus starts out in the lower room in shame, but he's birthed. And I, I've, you got to get this picture, and I'm almost done, but you can't miss this. Stay with me for two more minutes. You can't, you can't miss this. One of the scholars I read said that sometimes with baby lambs that were born in inclement weather or in certain times, that a good shepherd would take that lamb and wrap it and place that lamb in a manger for protection. I'm not saying that that's why he was placed in a manger, but what a beautiful picture of the fact that here is Jesus Christ wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. Not some beautiful Gerber baby picture, but here's this baby. Because what I love is that later on when his cousin sees him coming as a grown man at 30 years old, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God. I wonder if his cousin, John the Baptist, remembered hearing the stories about, yeah, your cousin Jesus, he was born with the animals. In fact, it was so bad they even placed him with the with where they placed the lambs. But later on when John saw him, he went, wait a minute. I don't think that was by accident. And what's amazing was is that Bethlehem was known and Bethlehem was the place that all the lambs that were going to be sacrificed in the temple unto God were born and raised. They were born and raised in Bethlehem, 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. And they were taken to the temple and they were presented to the temple for sacrifice. So when the Lamb of God came, he came to Bethlehem. But he didn't come with prestige. He came in shame because his shame defeated our shame. His rejection defeated our rejection. His birth erased the Rahab story. Because Rahab became something beautiful. Because without a Rahab, there'd be no David. And without, no da without a David, there'd be no Jesus. With that one birth, Jesus erased all of it. And hope finally had a name. Hope didn't have a name up to then. Hope had a name, God. Hope had a name. You could say it no but in, but on that day when Jesus was born in the lower chamber of a house because he did, had no room in the upstairs, he wasn't allowed to go upstairs, Hope got a name, and that name was Jesus. So when David said, he'll turn your mourning into dancing, he didn't know the name that was going to do that, but you and I know the name today that's going to do that, and that name is Jesus Christ. That name is Jesus Christ. So his shame takes away our shame. His rejection. And what's amazing about this is, is that he started in the lower room of the house to bring forgiveness and to, and to defeat shame. But he ended his power and demonstration by pouring out his spirit in the upper room. The place of relationship. The place where family. The place of acceptance. So with Christ, he brings you and defeats you with, he defeats your shame in the lower room. He takes to the depth. Come on, somebody. Hear what I'm saying? I feel the Holy Ghost. He doesn't pull you out of the pit to forgive you. He forgives you in the pit. He doesn't pull you out of rejection to heal you. He heals you in rejection. But he doesn't just heal you to leave you there. You start in the lower room right here. But his desire is not to keep you in your shame, even though he forgives you in your shame, because by the time it comes, the Bible says they were all in one accord in one place in an upper room and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. The upper room became a place where you 
took on the Last Supper, the bread and body of Christ. But the upper room became symbolized as the place where his spirit was poured out because that became the power. The power to what? The Holy Ghost becomes the power in us for us to become what we can't become on our own. Somebody needs to hear that today. He'll say he'll forgive you and heal you in your lower room, but he wants you to get to the upper room where he wants to show you his power and authority and he wants to change you. So today, hope has a name. His name is Jesus. The Father has a name. It's Jesus. The Son has a name. It's Jesus. The Holy Ghost has a name and it's Jesus. And when you find out that Jesus has the answer to everything, you don't have to be a Rahab anymore. No, your name may not change. You may be a Rahab, but by the reputation of everybody else, but God doesn't see you as a Rahab because he sees you as Rahab, the person that I want to come from. I want to come from Rahab. I don't want to reject Rahab. I want Rahab to be my great, 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 great granny. So for those of you today that are so hopeless you can't get out of bed, for those of you that have listened to the lies of religion, who have listened to the accusations of, the, of, your, of your past, of your family, of maybe your friends or a parent or a, a, a child or a loved one or a spouse or whoever, a boss, a teacher who's ever said that and you're so paralyzed because you're hopeless because of what you've done or what others have done, I've come to tell you today, hope has a name. It's Jesus. And if you would let Jesus today, he'll turn your mourning into dancing. He'll turn your sorrow into joy. He'll give you the garment of praise for your heaviness. There's hope. And he said, well, that's just a bunch of platitudes, Joel. You're just telling me something because you're trying to make me feel good. No, the Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm saying give Give God a chance. Yeah, you're in the, you may be in the lower room right now. You may be rejected. And at the bottom, you may be looking at a manger instead of a crib. But that's where he was, and he was bruised for our trans, for our iniquity, chastised by his stripes. We are healed. He bore shame to forgive us and to heal us from our shame. That's Jesus today. There's hope in Jesus. Father, I thank you today. I thank you for the message of hope that you've given all of us. God, these are not my words. I can't bring hope. I'm just a man. I'm trying to find hope myself every day. But I know hope only lives in you. So, Father, today I speak by the power, the authority of the name of Jesus. I lose faith to rise up in every heart today. I speak the light of hopelessness to shine. I curse every lie of the adversary. I curse every lie of the spirit of religious tradition. I curse every spirit of accusation. I curse every fear. I curse every doubt. I curse every voice of shame. And I say, be free in Jesus' name. Be healed in Jesus' name. Receive the love of Christ today. Receive the love of Christ today. And let God turn your mourning into dancing, your sorrow into joy. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you right where you are would just lift your hands to heaven, you might say, God, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray it. I don't even know the words to say, but God, I want this right now. Would you just show me how to receive this? My doubt is strong, but my faith is weak. But God, I, I reach out to you with one little faith I have and say, God, here I am today. Here I am. I'm in my shame. I'm in my Rahab. I'm in my rejection. I'm in my brokenness. But God, here I am. Just lift your hands to him right now and just say that to him. And if you begin to do that and open up your heart to Jesus Christ, you will begin to feel the love and the tenderness and the, the peace and the beauty of Christ just begin to wrap his arms around you. You might feel tears. You may not feel 
feel tears. You might be, you, you might feel emotion. You may not feel emotion, but it's not not determining whether or not God's doing something. We receive by faith. We are righteous by faith. We are forgiven by faith. Would you receive it right now? I feel, I hear hearts being mended. I feel, I hear chains being broken. I hear hopelessness fleeing, and I feel hope rising in some hearts today. You don't have to live the way you're living right now, but there's hope in Jesus Christ. Hear what I'm saying today? You may never meet me. We may never meet in person. This may be the only time you ever hear my voice, but I'm not speaking to you today. God has stopped today to speak to you because He hears your cry, He sees your story, but more importantly, He knows your heart. Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart would you let God today write the rest of your story you might have written your story today up to this point or someone else man or a or or a, a father or a mother may have been the one who wrote your story and it's been a mess up to this point but the Bible says he's the author and the finisher of our faith so give God your pen to say God I can't write anymore of my story it's a mess it's a mess but God here's my story and there'll be forgiveness and love and peace and joy you'll find in him because hope has a name and that name is Jesus Christ. And you can find that today if you would just reach out and accept it in faith today in Jesus.